And um, is, that, is, that the, is that a motorcycle going by? Hi, this is Bob Clearmountain. Uh, one more time. So same thing again, intro again. And we're going to have a little conversation about what I have no idea. There's a truck going by. Hi, this is Bob Clear Mountain, and we're doing a podcast on, uh, no, what did I, what was the original thing? Hi, this is Bob Clear Mountain, and you're listening to the Clear Mountains Domain Podcast. I have with me Cody Klo from Apogee Electronics to have a little conversation with, oh dear. <laughs> that sucks. That was great timing. This is this Clear Mountains is Domain. Thanks for joining us. You are listening to episode two of the Clear Mountains Domain Podcast. Woohoo! My name's Cody Klo, and I'm sitting here with the man who clearly needs no introduction, <laughs> legendary audio mixing engineer, Bob Clear Mountain. So our first episode came out just a few weeks ago, and the response has been honestly incredible. We've received questions from listeners all around the world, and I've selected a handful of them that I'm going to ask you in today's episode, Bob. So let's jump right in. What is Mix This? Well, it's a studio in the basement of my house, actually. I mean, I worked in commercial studios all over the place in New York, in London, Los Angeles, Sydney, France. It's always been fine with me, you know? I mean, somebody else is always paying the bill, so I don't have to worry about that part. But when I moved to Los Angeles, I was living in actually the marina, which is quite a distance away from where the studios are. I usually was working at A&M Studios, which is now called Henson in Hollywood or Record Plant or some of the other studios in, in Hollywood. And it's a bit of a drive. It's probably about anywhere between 20 minutes and an hour, depending on LA traffic or even more. And late at night after working on a session, I used to, I would work until 11 or midnight or even later. I'd be pretty tired and it was kind of scary driving home and, and a lot of crazy people on the roads in this town. And so I thought it might be a good idea to build my own place. And my wife, Betty, we were just buying a house actually in Pacific Palisades. And I mentioned it to her. I said, you know, it might be a good thing so that I don't have to drive if we built a studio. Or it could have actually been her idea just so that I'd be home all the time. And so we were looking around for a house and we were looking for a place with a a separate guest house, which would have been ideal, because a lot of people in this town do studios like that. Um, but our real estate agent was uh, quite clever. And she said, well, this particular house I'm going to show you doesn't have a guest house, but it's got a really large basement, which is unusual in Los Angeles. Most houses don't even have basements here. So, oh, well, let's look at it. And it was just perfect. It was on this little quiet horse street just off Sunset Boulevard. So it's convenient to everybody. It had this great basement. The, the house itself was just exactly the right size just the right number of bedrooms and everything. Had a pool, a jacuzzi. <laughs> Growing up, I never thought I'd actually live in a place like this first off. The basement opened right out onto the pool. It was, it's in a canyon, so you can walk straight out. There's no. It's not like you're climbing stairs to get out of a basement. It just opens right out onto the, the pool area. Yeah, we can do this. And so we bought it. Actually, they wanted too much money for it at the time. But we kept waiting. We waited about six months, and the price kept dropping. The guy just couldn't sell it. It was in the middle of a housing dip in the early 90s. Finally, it got down to a point where, well, we just couldn't let it go because we could, I mean, I could just barely afford it. I've always felt that something like that that you really like, and it's just almost out of your reach, just go for it because it'll pay off. And it certainly did. So we, we bought the house, moved in, and immediately started planning the studio. 
remember I was working on a crowded house record at the time in Melbourne, Australia, actually. And uh, we were sending plans back and forth between our architect because I pretty much laid it out. And I, I said to him, a guy named Brett Taney, who's quite brilliant. He's a, an incredible acoustician, actually. I said, look, this is what I want, but can you make it sound good and look nice? <laughs> he said, yeah, yeah, no problem. And he did. That was that. And then, it's, so the name came about. We built the studio and then, okay, what are we going to call it? And Betty and I have a, um, a really good friend named Erica Lopez. Really funny girl. I'm just really, just very witty and everything. And we were sitting around with a few shots of tequila and let's figure out a name. Uh, I don't know, super mix. Ultimate mix, you know, mix LA. I think somebody already has that one, you know, and just shouting out names. And after a few more shots of tequila, finally, Erica actually shouted out, mix this, That's you know, great. almost in a sarcastic way. I mean, she was, she's really a brilliant person. And, and immediately she said, mix this. And I turned and went, That's it. That's fantastic. That's the name, you know, with an exclamation point, of course, when written. I love it. That's great. And, and that, that was that. And then, and then the first session in October of 93 was actually, uh, Bruce Springsteen, Streets of Philadelphia. Really? Yeah, that was our very first thing. We had to sync it to video and everything because it was for for that movie, Philadelphia. You know, back in those days, you had to get a big video cassette machine in and synchronizers. Oh, and yeah. It's a lot easier nowadays. <laughs> so that was a bit of a challenge. And the studio wasn't even done yet. We hadn't gotten our final building permit because we hadn't done all the earthquake proofing. There was a air return for the air conditioner that needed all kinds of steel reinforcement and things. This one wall had to be bolted into the ceiling, and so we didn't have all the uh, diffusers on, on all the walls put up yet. But uh, it still went pretty well. It was a fairly big hit. You know, one of the things that uh, was interesting to me is I always thought it would be really cool to have a house with a wine cellar in it. And you got a house with a wine cellar in it and turned it into... This had, yeah, this house was, it was amazing because it had this basement and then next it was like a big L-shaped recreation area and we turned part of it into the lounge and the other part into the studio. And then next to that, on the other side of the stairs, was a, like a utility room. It was, you know, the air conditioner, the heating and air was in there. And um, they had, I think the guy bought it from was an art dealer or something. So he had these big, really deep um, shelves which we took out, and I said, wow, this is great, a machine room. Because back then, I had a big 48-track Sony tape machine. I actually had a, two Sony tape machines and a Studer 24-track. So I had three big tape machines that had to go someplace, and I didn't want them in the studio. There wasn't really room for them. So that was perfect. I mean, it was just the perfect size for a machine room. And then the SSL's got this massive rack of stuff. Right. Power supplies and the, this ancient computer that's like... <laughs> enormous and uh and then there's another little door next to that that goes even it's almost underground really but it's under the kitchen it was a wine cellar it was actually a wine cellar. they had wine racks in there it's this just a long sort of room with no ventilation whatsoever and we kind of ripped out all the wine racks painted it with epoxy paint and split it in half and put a diagonally situated wall in between the two with this tiny little door and so they gave us two chambers, so that those are the mix of this chambers. And that's a, a pretty signature sound, right? That reverb, because you did impulse responses and whatnot, We right? did impulse responses that are on, on the, uh, the domain. They're, they're part of the domain now. It's a beautiful sounding wine cellar. Yeah, and I was always into the, the sound of Motown records. And so I was 
going for that kind of short, bright, splashy sound, which is you know somewhat duplicated with these things, except they just had one mono chamber, I think, and this is two two chambers, and I used them in stereo, one of them on the left, the other one on the right. But it's interesting, because it was the corner of the basement foundation, one of the chambers, the far chamber, had two concrete walls, and the near chamber just had one concrete wall, and the other walls were drywall. And so the far chamber was longer. It was about three or four tenths of a second longer than the one with only the one concrete wall. There was a certain formula of towels. We just kept putting towels in there and really? taking them out until they, they were sounded equal. That's crazy. Just, just laying on the floor. Wow. That's so cool. One of my favorite things about your studio is that you have another thing that I've always wanted. I mean, it's really just the door to your machine room, but it is a secret passage. You would never in a million years think that that wall opens up into a machine room. I always thought it would be so cool to have a secret passage, and you do. It just leads to a room with very, very ancient computers and (laughs) gear. It's crazy. Yeah. One of the things I asked the architect, I said, look, there's a wall here, and Actually, it was originally a wall when we bought the house, but it was behind the stairs. It's kind of hard to describe, but there's a stairway, and there's just this little space, and I knew that there could be a door there. And I said to the architect, look, I want a secret door. I don't want it to look like a door. Oh, so you designed it that way. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. And he turned it into a a diffuser, basically. It just looks like a a curved diffuser with a bunch of wood. And then he matched that architecture on the other opposite side of the room where there's an actual window. So on one side, it's just dark, and then you just pull on it, and it becomes a door. On the other side, it's just stationary, but you can see through it to the outside. Yeah, and it is beautiful. Now, I don't know if this is too much of a rabbit trail, but I would love to hear, because you are so knowledgeable about this as well, uh, what is some of the treatment that goes into building out a recording studio? I know about different things that go inside the walls and the slant of the windows and it being raised up a little bit off the ground. And I mean, there are all these details. What were some of the things that you did in your space at Mix This? Well, it was tricky, you know, because it's not a huge room. It's like 19 feet across and it's square, parallel walls, which is about the worst thing that you can have for a control room because it's really susceptible to standing waves if you have two concrete walls facing each other. And so we designed these diffusers that go on the wall, made out of oak, I think. And they have all different angles and little, they're little pegs that stick out and they're different lengths. And so sounds just bounce off. It's not absorption, it's just diffusion. Sounds hmm. bounce off in all different directions. And it's a very natural sound. It's, it's not a completely dead room. Actually, there's some very natural liveness to it. So you don't feel like you're, you know, you walked into a closet. It feels normal. And yet there's no standing ways. Then the back wall was interesting because there's a rack with a bunch of gear in it. And then behind that, a couch, which I built up a bit higher than most people would normally. I mean, I've been in studios where the floor is just flat and there's this leather couch sitting way back behind the, the rack. And people back there, they don't feel like part of the, the session. You know what I mean? They're kind of hidden behind there. They can't really hear anything very well because they're so low. Right. I said, well, let's build it up. You know, it's, I think it's like eight inches. The platform is about eight inches high. So there's a couch on there. And I said to the architect, I said, look, it's got to sound good back there. It can't sound, because I've been in other studios that treat the couch as a bass track of the room. Right. I had one time, I won't mention the studio because I don't want to insult any studio uh, designers, but um, I was mixing something and 
the A&R guy was sitting in the back of the room reading the paper while I was mixing. And then finally I got the mix together. And I said, oh, well, c- come on up and, and have a listen. And he comes up and sits next to me. He goes, well, why did you turn the bass down? I said, I haven't touched the oh, bass. Gosh. What do you mean? No, no, it's you, a, sec- a minute ago when I was sitting back there, you had a ton of bass. And, uh, and, and now, now it sounds normal. <laughs> now it sounds lower yeah. than what I was used to. I said, no, no, I haven't touched it. And it turns out the studio designer actually designed it. And I'd been in a bunch of other rooms that the same guy had designed. And every time, that's the bass trap, which is like, really? So you don't give a crap about the people sitting on the right. couch? The people that are actually you know listening. I mean? It's yeah. so ridiculous. And, and so I said, look, it's, it's got to sound good on that couch. So he immediately took out the drawings and uh, said, okay, well, we'll need a bit more trapping because behind that is a concrete wall. And uh, so he put like a minimum of eight inches, I think. And then, then the, the sides of that, that room sort of angle in. So there's even more in the sides. And uh, so it actually sounds good on the couch. And that, that was one of my biggest criteria. It's amazing how many studios are designed by professional studio designers and they suck. <laughs> Basically, yeah. they, some of these desi- designers do the dumbest things. They'll they'll design a concrete bunker basically for a control room. Mm-hmm. Okay, that that's nice. So it's you have perfect isolation, which doesn't really matter in most cases. And then they say, okay, well now we have all this base booming around in the control room that we can't get rid of. So then they start building base traps, which of course makes the room half the size that it should be. And it's something that I right. learned from Tony Bon Jovi at, at Power Station, actually. When he built Power Station, Studio A control room is just a box. It's like a, um, it's just studs and drywall, basically, a couple layers. But it's sitting in the middle of a, an open space. Boy, you go into the shop, which is right behind, and you hear all the bass coming through there. And you hear, so it's not perfect isolation. But I tell you what, the control room sounds great, and there's never a problem. Isolation isn't the most important thing with studios. Let some of that sound out of the control room. Otherwise, you're going to have a big problem. Right. That's actually one of the things that I love so much about our live room. I refuse to track vocals in the vocal booth because the live room sounds so good. Every time I do vocals, I go into that room just because I, I love yeah. the sound of it. Yeah. And, and I hate walking into a dead sounding room or studio. It's like your lexicon thing. Like, my gosh, are you sponsored by a soundproofing company? Jeez. It's just switching gears a little bit. Uh, sometimes you mix uh, in surround. You have a surround sound setup, right? Uh, yeah, and uh, mix this. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, what happened, surround was a big thing for about a minute there, back in the, right. uh, when it was early 2000s, I think. And my wife, Betty, of course, who started and runs Apogee, said, you know, you should be mixing surround. You should be mixing 5.1. I'm thinking, oh, my God. I rolled my eyes. I go, that's all I need is just something else to think about. Yeah, right. And then I woke up in the middle of the night one night, and, and it all of a sudden occurred to me how I could do it and how actually it wouldn't be that difficult to do it on my SSL. You know, it's a bit kludgy for sure in the SSL. It was never designed for that. And then I also figured out a way to do uh, six-channel compression, which was very easy because there, there's some extra VCAs on that come with that console. They're patchable VCAs, but I figured out a way to slave them off the stereo compressor and the console that it, it not only does the compression, but it does the fades and everything, you know. And uh, it cost about $20, I think. Really? Yeah, and luckily there's somebody at Apogee, Lucas Vandermee, was quite familiar with the, the uh, G-Series. 
And he, he worked that out, how he could do that. Wow. Helped quite a bit. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, but so that was it. And he put up some, you know, five speakers and a sub. And as they say, I'm your uncle. <laughs> yeah, right. And Bob's your uncle. That's great. Well, I just put that together. The reason I bring up the surround sound is, to this day, the most incredible sonic experience I've had was when you played Bob Marley's surround sound mix that you did for the anniversary uh, for Rolling Stone. My gosh, I just, I'd never heard anything like it. It was so incredible. What was it like to uh, work on such a well-known iconic album and remix it? That was unbelievable. Are you kidding? The label called me up and said, oh, would you be interested in doing a surround mix of uh, Bob Marley's greatest hits? Yeah, let me think about it. Yeah, it took me, you know, less than a millisecond, I think, to make that decision. There was no latency in that, that thought process. Right. And they said they were going to pay me for it. I thought I'd, I'd have to pay them to do that. You know? Right. Didn't pay me a lot, but this, then I would have done it for, I mean, don't tell anybody, but I would have done it for free. Yeah, right. Well, now it's done. So yeah. it's, it is so incredible. Yeah, it's really a fun thing to listen to. It really, Especially what an amazing band. And there's so many in, great sounds to, to uh, mess with. To, you know, the idea of it was, I'm sure some people would listen to it and go, well, why would you put the piano or the organ in the in the back sure. or percussion or whatever, but it's 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 like you're sitting in the session in the middle of the session. It's exactly what it feels like. You know, it, with surrounded by musicians. I remember the first time I even brought my wife over to the house. I was like, Bob, will you please play the Marley surround sound mix? It's so good. I think you can still get it on Amazon, by the way. Really? Yeah, and a Blu-ray. Oh, ooh. Yeah, you just need a Blu-ray player and some sort of surround system. Nice. All right. Make sure to click on the affiliate link and use promo code ClearMountain for probably no discount at all. But uh, <laughs> yeah, give it a try. Who knows? So speaking of studios, this is a story that I love. Let's talk about your second studio, which is where we are right now. Tell me a little bit about how this whole thing came to be. I have a version that I've heard from Betty, and I want to hear how this whole thing came to be, why you decided to build a second studio. Right. Well, Betty bought this building, which is 10,000 square feet, and half of it is the, the Apogee offices. A quarter of it is the warehouse and tech support, I think, or something. Not tech support, but... Uh, the lab? The lab, that's it, yeah. That's the room where... If an Apogee piece of gear ever broke, they would fix it there. That's never happened yet. But Not yet. Yeah, those people just sit around. They're, they do nothing. Yeah, they just sit there waiting <laughs> yeah. for some, like the Maytag right. guy. Yeah, know. right. <laughs> but anyway, um, so then there was this other section that w where there was an office, like it was sort of a square office and a loading bay. And it was a, a big section that was, we were only using it for storage. It had some old furniture in here from our kids, I think. Some of their furniture they didn't want anymore. and. And I, so I went into Betty's office and I, I sat down and I said, there's a big wasted space over there. We could do a really nice sort of a, like a garage studio. Um, we don't have to spend a lot of money, just something where we can record stuff. It would be nice. She goes, well, if you get the hell out of my office and stop bugging me, we'll do it. <laughs> that is pretty much the version of the story I heard that uh, you came in and she said, Bob, half our house is your studio. Why would you need another studio? Right, exactly. And, she told me that you weren't working on a project and you came in and sat on her couch and stared at her every day until she said, build the studio, get out of my Just office. Just leave me alone. Yeah, yeah it's so great. So but, I wouldn't say it is your typical garage studio. No, we went a little, little overboard. <laughs> it's, it's one of the most incredible studios I've ever, ever been in. Wow, so thanks, Cody. I love it. Appreciate that. 
So, so the Apogee Studio, my favorite story, and there are so many, but my favorite is with the console. Right. Tell me a little bit about uh, when you were, you know, building the studio out, what was your thought process, you know, in deciding to get a console and what you wanted? Thinking back to the 70s, a studio called Power Station, actually Media Sound and Power Station, the first two rooms that we built at Power Station had a console called a Neve. It was an AD68, which is a 32-channel analog console. It was Neve's first inline console that they ever made. It was just a classic-sounding console. The, just everything out of that studio always sounded amazing. It was really easy to use. I thought it'd be great to, to have one like that. So I You ran down to Guitar Center and... Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> and just picked one up. Yeah, that's it. Ordered one on yeah, Sweetwater. Sweetwater, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Where's my Neve 8068? Yeah. Now, it wasn't quite that easy because they had long since stopped making them. And not only not only had they stopped making them, but the ones that were built had been chopped up because you could take the modules out, which is the equalizer module also has the preamp in it. So you could take them out and rack mount them and run them off of a separate power supply. And it became a, a much smaller portable unit. You could have eight of them in a, in a box or whatever. And people would rip them out and set, sell the modules separately. And it was very hard to find any intact. And so I Googled Neve 8068 and one came up. And it actually said original Studio A console from Power Station. Wow. And I thought, oh my God, that's exactly the one that I yeah, want. Yeah, that's the exact, not just the yeah, same model. Yeah, that funny? And um, I thought, well, that's, that's interesting. Gee, if I could get that, it would almost be poetic. Right. Here's a console that I made tons of hit records on. You know, Brian Adams, The River was recorded on that. All the Chic records, Chic and Sister Sledge, We Are Family, all those were all done there. And just tons of other records. A lot of punk rock from Blondie and wow. the Ramones and all kinds of stuff. I mean, stuff that I didn't necessarily do. David Bowie, I, I think Scary Monsters was mostly recorded on there. Wow. I thought that would be great if I could get a hold of that. So I started communicating with the guy. A guy named Steve Ripley, who has since unfortunately passed away. But uh, he lived in Oklahoma. He had a, a southern rock band called The Tractors. Nice. He had bought it in 95 from um, Tony Bon Jovi and Bob Walters from Power Station. They, they actually installed the same console, just a bigger one, an AD88, which is a 40-input version of it, which is still there, by the way, and in really good condition. So I started talking to him and then trying to figure out if it was authentically the same one. And of course, we're st I'm still friends with Ed Evans, who was the head tech at Power Station. And he checked it out. And then we had Lucas Vandermeer from Apogee. He went out to Oklahoma and he said, yeah, yeah, this, this would be it. Well, so you found it. I found it. But the thing, the funny part about it is that Betty had... Lucas looking because Lucas likes to find stuff on the internet. You know, he restores old Moogs and things like that. She had him looking for it too, and he came up with the same one. And so there were just two people interested in this console, so and great. it was Lucas and Betty and me. And neither so of us. You guys started outbidding each other, trying to surprise the other one. Well, I guess we kind of did. I mean, we still got it for you know a few thousand less than what he was asking, but we might have actually gotten it for less than that. You know. Because I think my first offer was quite a bit less, and then it kind of... He said, well, I got this other person. Right, exactly. 
That's so funny. Yeah, and so we were sort of bidding against each other, I guess. But anyway, we got it. How did that all end up? Did someone win the bidding war, or did you guys both figure out? Were you sitting around? Was Betty like, no, I I've got f- something to tell you, but I don't know if I'm going to win this bid? I think we figured it out. You know, we finally... I think I said to Betty, oh, I found this console on, on the internet, and I, I think I'd really like to get it. And she said, oh, well, we found one, too. And then we realized, oh, it's the same one. <laughs> that would be a really funny conversation to rewatch. I love it. All right. So let's transition here. I have a handful of questions. Uh, we only have time to go through a few, but a handful of questions from different people. I think I've chosen my favorites. So here's the first question. What's the strangest thing a client has ever asked you to do? Is that with my clothes on or off? E- either or. No. Either or. Yeah, I think we'll avoid the ones. Yeah. The okay. We'll, we'll keep off. a G. Actually, aren't any of those. There weren't any of those, <laughs> <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. One thing I thought was interesting was that, you know, I did a mix and everybody's happy. You know, and you usually run different versions after, you know, you run a vocal up and a vocal down, all, all that stuff, and an instrumental. And so... The producer said, okay, so I'd like you to run an instrumental version and then run one without any vocals at all. Wow. <laughs> I thought, wow. Sure. Yeah, I could probably do both of those. <laughs> oh, my God. In fact, I think I could do them at the same time. <laughs> this guy's like, both at the same time? What? <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, my goodness. And then you told me one that I love about Dan Wilson. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Well, Dan, Dan Wilson from Semisonic, I mean, a great friend, just an unbelievably great songwriter. The band Semisonic were fantastic, and I loved working with them. But he liked to do a lot of stuff in the mix. I mean, my 72 input SSL totally maxed on this one song. Wow. I mean, every channel's got things going on. Every piece of outboard gear has got sound going through it. You know, every delay, everything. And this is back when we were still coming off tape. We were coming off the digital tape. Uh, we weren't running off Pro Tools yet. This is back in the 90s. And then he, he said, okay, just, and I thought we were done. I thought, okay, this is it. And he, he just turns, he goes, look, there's just this one, I'd just like to have this one little vocal delay at this one point in the song. I'm like, oh my God. And I thought, is this like a test? Yeah, I, thought, right? I even said to him, I said, is this some kind of quiz that you've seen? <laughs> What, what it's going to take to like, like make me crack. Bob's like, I quit. I quit. I'm done. <laughs> but it was interesting. So from that, I came up with our little slogan, which is always a way. There's always a way. I like that. That's good. That's yeah. good. There's always a way. Yeah. And there is, you know, no matter what's going on, figure out some way, shift some gear around, patch something, put a hundred more patches in. <laughs> I love that. That's yeah. actually a, a great life motto. Well, okay, that leads me to this next question, actually, pretty perfectly. Have you ever messed with any of your clients? Oh, Just I had fun with that. them. I would never mess with my clients. <laughs> I, would, I would never. <laughs> no, there was one time we were back at Power Station. I was co-producing a band with Tony Bon Jovi and Lance Quinn. These guys were, they were, they were, they were nice guys, but you know, we figured they could take a joke. <laughs> so anyway, so they're, we're doing a basic track, and they're playing, so it's a rhythm section, keyboard, guitar, drums, bass vocalist so they start doing this take everything's fine and then right at the chorus i had a harmonizer patched on into the guitar into the uh just the monitor part of the guitar and uh, i would click it into about you know plus 40 cents or something like that 
And so then, you know, I click it in, and of course the guitar's out of tune. And then so the guitar player was like, whoa, whoa, hold, hold it. My guitar's out of tune. Just hang it. Hang it one sec. Let me, let me just check it. And he's, he's checking it out. He's going, that, that's weird. It's, it's really not that far out. It's, it's pretty much in tune. Oh, my I gosh. I don't know why. You're a okay, cool well, man, Bob. <laughs> let's, let's do it again. Let's do another take. And um, so we're going along, and the chorus comes along. Click it in once more. What? Wait. It's out of tune again? That's weird, you know? I don't know. I don't know. It sounds, it sounds all right. I don't, can't figure out what's going on. So we go, okay, let's just hear the guitar, right? One at a time. So he played. Okay, let's hear the bass. Add the bass to that. That sounds fine. I'm going to figure out what this is. Okay, keyboards. Let's hear the keyboards. Okay, now the singer just singing along. Okay, okay, drummers, you start playing, Okay. And as soon as the drums started playing, I clicked it in again. Oh, my gosh. The guy lost <laughs> the his mind. The guitar player goes, the drums are out of tune? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's too good. Yeah, this is some fun thing. Did too. they ever figure it out? Yeah, yeah. They, yeah, oh, they looked, well, are you kidding? They looked in the control and were all like yeah, in stitches. Yeah, dying laughing. Were la- laughing oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, you guys. <laughs> okay, well, that actually... Leads me to my last question. Have you ever messed with any of your assistant engineers or interns? Well, I usually don't, but there, I, there's a story that I can tell that there are people, anyone from the A&M days would probably know this story. And I heard it from them. I, did, I wasn't, in, unfortunately, I wasn't involved or fortunately wasn't involved yeah. in this. But, you know, they'd always have interns. They'd have like runners and in, interns. They little had this little routine from what I understand that uh, the new interns, there were two things. First of all, they'd, they'd order a truck. They'd like rent a truck, right? Have it come in. They said, look, we have a delivery. Because they had two live echo chambers. And for anybody that doesn't know, an echo chamber is basically a reverberant room with a speaker and a microphone or two microphones. And so they said, look, we're, we got an order of reverb because we're just about out. Oh, my god! We're just about out of reverb. So they're going to back that truck in and just make sure you Stop get it. the reverb out of the truck and, and fill the chamber up. Stop it. <laughs> so like, oh, my god! Wait a minute. How do I do that? And then, of course, then the other thing, of course, I don't know if anybody would get this now, but we used to have Dolby noise reduction, right? And there was a Dolby rack that was hooked up in the tape machine, and it kind of got rid of the noise out of the tape. One of the jobs for the intern was, okay, clean the noise out of the Dolby because that builds up after a while. After, you know, a few weeks of using them, that noise is all in those Dolbys and you just got to clear it out. And so, you know, they'd be looking at this thing, (laughs) this rack of electronics. and Okay, well, is there a special brush or something that I use? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And there's always the the joke, uh, media sound that we used to do to a new receptionist where... We had a phone patch. You could record something on a tape and then patch it into the phone, right? So we record somebody going, uh, hey, Susie, or whatever, whatever her name was, could you order me some lunch? Then give them a whole order. You know, I want a cheeseburger and some fries and, you know, this and that. And record it and then patch it the phone, call the receptionist, walk upstairs to the front desk, and the same person would stand there in front of the receptionist as she's taking the order she was on the to. phone. <laughs> and then he'd, he'd just go, who are you talking to? And she'd go, well, I'm, t- I'm talking to, to Jimmy. Oh, oh Wait my gosh. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. So he's, I mean, it's just I love it's it. harmless fun. It is, it is. I'm sure you have <laughs> many right. more stories that we might have to dig into uh, at a later time. 
All right, so we're going to go ahead and wrap up this episode. And as always, we want to end with some advice. And so this is a question that I actually asked Bob earlier, and it's something that I've struggled with. How do you deal with a client who asks you to make changes that you feel are just wrong, especially when what you've delivered, you feel like it's so good? It's that struggle of giving the client what they want, right, but also giving them something you just feel is horrible. And, you know, it's, I think it's probably something that most creative people struggle with. So I would love to hear your input on this. Okay, well, there's two ways. There's really three ways to handle that. The first way is to argue with them. All right, well, that's sure to get you fired and right. you probably never see the client again. Right. Which has happened to me a couple of times. Really? <laughs> yeah. In fact, um, I played bass years ago on an album by a band called The Dead Boys back in the, in the 70s. Then I ended up mixing the album as well. Then I had an argument. The producer wanted to, the two songs that I thought were the best mixes on the album, she wanted to remix. Oh, gosh. And I argued with her. I said, look, you're full of crap. Those are the best mixes on the album. Oh, really? You're fired. Oh. And that was it. And then she re- remixed the whole album. And, um, and then a couple other times, things like that, where I've argued. I just never saw the producer again. So first of all, that's not the thing to do. Okay. What is the thing to do is to bury your ego and just do whatever it is they wanted. There's probably a reason they want what they want, no matter what you think. And it's their project. It's not yours. If you're just mixing something for somebody, you should do what you should get into their head. And this is what I do is I try to figure out what it is, why they want that thing, you know. And if I can't, I'll just go for it and see see if I can do it and see if I can make, maybe make it better, maybe somehow do some sort of compromise so that they're happy and that it still sounds like a good thing. I love that. I feel like so often people will get involved in a project later on and try to change it, you know, and, oh, that's just, that's so cool to hear. You try to get into their head, feel what they were feeling, think what they were thinking and, you know, and, and help them get their message across. That's really cool. Exactly. And not only that, but I've learned stuff. You know what I mean? Like, like I think, oh, that's crazy what this person wants to do. It just doesn't make any sense. And then we do it, and then I go, I listen to it, and I go, oh, that's actually kind of cool. You know, it turns out, and now I've learned something. You know, I can use it in the next project, maybe. I mean, th- that doesn't always happen, but occasionally it will. You know, don't be open-minded. Be complete, you have to be completely open-minded. And no matter what the producer wants it's, it's, or the artist, it's, it's their vision. I love that. That's great. Well, you heard it from the man, the myth, the legend, Bob Clearmountain. And one of the many keys to his success is to get inside the artist's head. I guess you've always said it this way, like the best mixer is the one that you you didn't know you needed, right? Like <laughs> right, yeah. if you hear it and you're like, man, that was mixed horrible, then that's a bad, bad mixer, right? right. But if uh, you hear it and you're like, man, this song's great, this band's awesome, and the yeah. mixer gets no credit, that's like the best mixer, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't really... I don't care about somebody thinking, oh, well, that's a great mix. I just want them to like the, the, the song or the record. Right. That's the important thing. And actually, I said no more questions, but there's one more because I just heard someone ask you this the other day. I can't even remember where we were. And I loved your answer. How do you know when a mix is done? <laughs> when, when I can play it from start to finish without getting up and reaching for anything. That's great. It's so difficult sometimes to not continue to make tweaks and changes and whatnot. So you just, when you get to the point where you can listen all the way through, make no changes, it's finished. That's great. I love it. 
All right. So I have a feeling I'm going to be saying this for quite a while, but Bob, there are still so many questions that we have for you and so many questions that are coming in from listeners. If you've enjoyed this podcast, it would mean the world to us if you would head over to iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast, drop us a five-star review and subscribe and share it with your friends, your family, your kids, your neighbors, your doctor, your mailman. Make sure you cover all the bases. All right, guys, that's all for now. Thank you so much. And we'll catch you guys in the next episode. Cheers. Next time, time. Clear Mountain's Domain. Bob tells all as he shares his secret to getting a clean mix. Well, I usually just vacuum the console three or four times a week. I mean, just to keep the dust off. You know what dust can do to an SSL. Pays tribute to those who've influenced him. People always ask about the cats. Yeah, yeah, they've, they've taught me a lot, I must admit. And explains how mixing is much more visual than you may think. Yeah, well, I kept debating about different speakers, you know, the NS10s, the Dyn Audios. I'm just away from that altogether. I don't even use speakers. I just watch the meters. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Clear Mountain's Domain. For more information about this podcast or to submit questions for Bob to answer in future episodes, please visit us online at apogeedigital.com and click on the Clear Mountain's Domain podcast banner. This podcast is recorded with Apogee Hype Mike and yours should be too. Visit ApogeeDigital.com for a list of dealers in your area or pick up a renewed version from Apogee Online. Make sure to use promo code CLEARMOUNTAIN at checkout to receive our podcast family discount. You're welcome.